there has to be an overall cultural shift uh, about how we see the border um, and not see this as, as, as a problem or a crisis or an issue that must be fixed, um, but a place that needs to be protected, um, as a place that needs to be celebrated, as a place that actually provides a framework for all of us as, as we look forward. Welcome to Migrations, a world on the move, a series brought to you by Cornell University's Migrations Initiative. I'm Eleanor Painter, postdoctoral associate in migrations and your host for this podcast that seeks to understand our world through the interconnected movements that shape it. And welcome to the final episode of our first season. We've really enjoyed sharing these conversations with you and look forward to sharing season two later this year. In this episode, we focus on migration and dispossession. In simple terms, dispossession is the act of depriving someone of land or property. It's both a local and a global issue, one that spans history and physical space. In this episode, we consider dispossession in several ways, as a physical act of displacement, as the deprivation of legal rights and recognition, as the erasure of history, as the prohibition of freedom of movement, and as limits on self-determination, and as the destruction of local ecologies. And as we untangle some of the connections between migration and dispossession, we begin by acknowledging that we produce this podcast at Cornell University, which is located on the traditional homelands of the Gayukono or the Cayuga Nation. The Gayukono are members of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, an alliance of six sovereign nations with a historic and contemporary presence on this land. The Confederacy precedes the establishment of Cornell, New York State, and the United States of America. We acknowledge the painful history of Gayukono dispossession and honor the ongoing connection of Gayukono people, past and present, to these lands and waters. This land acknowledgement was reviewed and approved by the traditional Gayukono leadership. We read a version of it at the end of every episode, but in this one, we want to open our conversations by intentionally addressing questions of occupation and dispossession in our immediate surroundings. And as your podcast host, I'm speaking from the position of a U.S. citizen and white settler and someone committed to continuing to learn, advocate, and act with these realities in mind. Although my conversations for this episode will focus on the U.S. context, multiple recent stories have highlighted dispossession as a very present issue globally. We recorded today's conversations a few weeks before the attacks in Sheikh Jarrah and the escalation of violence in Palestine, violence that has turned global attention to dispossession as a present-day concern and as an urgent question. And in news that has just come to light in Canada, the bodies of 215 Indigenous children have been found buried on the grounds of a former residential school in British Columbia. And these moments ask us again and again to re-engage with history and its shaping of the present. In this episode, we hear from two guests, Dr. Kurt Jordan, Director of the American Indian and Indigenous Studies Program here at Cornell, and Lakin Jordahl, a Borderlands campaigner based in Tucson, Arizona, with the Center for Biological Diversity. Both are doing work that makes visible how governments and institutions are tied to historical and ongoing acts of dispossession. Our conversations take up dispossession through questions of displacement, memory, borders, sovereignty, and rights. I, you know, I think that one of the things about dispossession is that 
it can happen even when on the surface it seems like it's not happening, I think. That's Dr. Kurt Jordan. Dr. Jordan is an archaeologist by training, studying the culture and history of the Haudenosaunee, the indigenous people in the Finger Lakes region of upstate New York, working to fill in some of the history that hasn't been recorded or that was long misrepresented by settlers. Here, settlers meaning non-indigenous people who colonized or whose ancestors colonized a particular area. Dr. Jordan's also part of a team that has traced how the land-grant system that enabled the founding of universities, including Cornell, dispossessed indigenous communities of their land. Uh, there was an article that came out in High Country News last March uh, that sort of identified the entanglement between land-grant universities like Cornell and indigenous dispossession across the, across the uh, uh, continent. Um, I think at this point we've identified ties uh, between Cornell and 15 different states through uh, the Morrill Act process, uh, in addition to sort of uh, obviously our entanglement with indigenous groups in, in New York state. And I think the total number of affected nations, we're actually up over 200 right now. Um, so it's a, it's a very complicated history. So since that article came out and Cornell had a very prominent place in it, we've been trying to understand that history, uh, connect the dots between what was going on historically and those where those communities are located uh, in the present, uh, which is not a particularly straightforward matter. Thanks, and yeah, I, I would, let's do come back to the question of the, the Cornell in Indigenous Dispossession Project. Um, also because I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit more about how we should be thinking or can be thinking about the broader relevance of some of the histories that you study for, for folks today. So I guess I would, to, to start us off, I would ask, how do you define dispossession in the context of your work? So certainly, I, you know, in, in some ways, it's kind of a common sense way of thinking about it, uh, where it's really sort of movement into the territory of another group with the intention of taking, o taking over, right? So this is, uh, you, you know, colonialism, um, and where the entering population really sort of bars access to previously uh, previously accessible spaces and resources for the original uh, for the original group. Some forms of dispossession can look legal, um, you know. So if we think about things like treaties, right, that those are something that uh, are supposed to be very honored. Um, voluntary parts of international diplomacy, but when indigenous nations in North America were um, engaged in treaty making with uh, the United States or sometimes the individual states within it, um, they, uh, they really were, were disadvantaged. There was pretty much, uh, I think none of those treaties Native people would have consented to voluntarily, that there was always an element of force um, and many of them, the, the, the amount of pressure that was put on Native people was pretty overwhelming. So even though sometimes it looks uh, equitable or quote unquote legal, um, you know, I think that we have to take into the uh, account the ability of sort of dominant powers to write the laws for their own benefit, right? So that the same way that let's say a legislator might be able to, um, you know, pa a, a vote for a bill that gave uh, him a pay raise, or let's say a president might be able to pardon some of his associates or something like that. 
there are things that are legal that are not necessarily moral, ethical, or fair. So maybe a very straightforward portrayal of the relationship between migration and dispossession is that dispossession involves displacement in some way. And I'm interested in hearing a little bit about how your work um, complicates that idea or tells, uh, tells a bit of the more complex history of that relationship. Could you say a little bit more, focusing maybe on, on this area that, that we're in now, the Cayuga lands in the, in the Finger Lakes region of New York? So indigenous peoples, as the original occupants in a particular area um, do assert, um, you know, obviously they've got an enormous amount of experience, uh, heritage, um, you know, that, that their, their languages, their cultures, their ways of life, their spiritual systems are, are all entangled in a, particular, uh, in a particular location. And I think if we look at the local area, let's say right in Ithaca, we don't really have much uh, Euro-American settlement uh, where people came and uh, with the intention to stay until right about 1790. Okay, so it's incredibly late in this region. It's actually after the American Revolution. But if you do uh, the math with the amount of, uh, you know, if you look at the proportions of the total amount of human occupation, uh, sort of European Americans have been the predominant residents for about 1.8% of the total human, uh, the human occupation, and and therefore, 98.2% uh, of the of the human history of this region uh, was when the indigenous population was predominant. Uh, so another another thing, I guess, that we might sort of complicate that is that there were, at least if we talk about uh, the uh, the dispossession uh, locally. That it was it was pretty extended and fairly complicated. Um, a lot of people think about the American Sullivan Clinton expedition, which was something that the uh, the uh, uh, George Washington, as the as the commander of the U.S. Army, ordered uh, into Seneca and Cayuga territory in 1779, uh, and there was widespread destruction as a consequence of that. There was actually his his orders. Um, indicate that he was looking for the extermination of, uh, of, uh, of local people. Uh, the communities regard this as a genocidal, uh, genocidal um, in intent. And I think that the, uh, there's, there's plenty of evidence to support uh, that position. Uh, but there, but uh, you know, many people sort of say, okay, well, the Americans, they conquered the region. They, you know, Sullivan Clinton was the end. But if you look at the details of the history, you will find that Sullivan Clinton left pretty much immediately after uh, the episodes of destruction and they went back down into Pennsylvania. And uh, Haudenosaunee or Six Nations Iroquois people came back, um, including Cayugas who came back to the Cayuga Lake region. And we've got pretty good uh, evidence that there were Cayuga people in uh, right in the Ithaca area um, until almost 1800. So, uh, so, and they overlapped with some of the early settlers and you can see that there's 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 slim evidence, but it's there of trade between uh, indigenous peoples and the first white residents of Ithaca for things like uh, baskets or maple syrup or furs or things like that. So, so there's it, it's it, you know it's not simply that there was that that episode of warfare, but uh, but you see this sort of complicated moving back and forth. Um, and then you, then you get some treaties that are uh, negotiated between uh, the Cayugas and others with New York State, which actually have been proven in court to have been 
um, illegal by federal law at the time. Um, although the uh, the Supreme Court basically said uh, that that although they were illegal, that the Cubans weren't um, entitled to any sort of damages, either in terms of land or in money. Uh, so it's 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 been very uh, it's been very very complicated. So where uh, the U.S. court system has actually said that this was uh, that the, that these uh, state treaties were not conducted. Um, uh, um, you know, equitably or or within the framework that had been set up by the federal government, but there's been no, but they also sort of washed their hands of any sort of responsibility. Could you talk a little bit about how the the representations of these histories have changed or been corrected over time? Yeah, um, I guess one of the one of the things that's very prominent if you read most local histories especially older sources, uh, but it's still quite prominent in people's minds. And it also is, uh, is present in a very interesting, I think and also troubling way on the landscape as well, is that there was a, there's been a longstanding pre presupposition among settler residents that there have been a series of population replacements among indigenous people throughout the history of this uh, of this uh, landscape, um, and so I think that this is another thing. There are political ramifications for that because it just again it's sort of like oh you know native people just cycle through here all the time. They never were here for very long. They were pushing each other out and and moving in different places. But I think that that a lot of that is is uh, is does not really hold up particularly well when you look at the detailed evidence. The real source of that is because the early archaeologists uh, who speculated about the deep history of what is now central New York had no idea about the true time depth of human occupation in this region. Uh, the very esteemed New York State archaeologist William Ritchie said that in 1944, he estimated that the total amount of um, human occupation in this region had been 2,000 years. Okay, we now know that it's 13,000, right? Among the Haudenosaunee, uh, there is oral tradition that dates back to the, uh, you know, to the, uh, the, uh, the, the last ice age. Um, I talked to uh, one, of my, uh, one of my colleagues who's Seneca, and he, and he was telling me the stories that his grandmother related about the time of the rushing water, um, which really sounds like it was, you know, like when the, uh, the, the glacial, um, ice melt lakes, you know, that they were, the, you know, that the, the, the ice dams broke and the water was just roaring, um, you know, down, down to uh, the Atlantic Ocean out of, uh, out of the Great Lakes. The native people, of course, uh, know this, but uh, most, most uh, um, settler scholars, I think, tend to read uh, the local histories, um, you know, and, and uh, it, that were written in the 19th and early 20th centuries and everybody's sort of replicating this story. When I did mention about it being present on the landscape, um, a lot of this has to do with, you know, the Works Progress Administration during the Depression. One of the ways that they put scholars uh, um, uh, to work was to do a series of road signs uh, across the state with uh, markers about important things that happened in local history. And so those are those uh, blue and yellow markers that if you drive around through New York State, if you look at the dates that most of those were uh, put up, a lot of them are 1932, 1933. And what, what that meant was um, 
a lot of the archaeological wisdom of that time has been put on signs um, and it's still there and that's what and people look at that and they were like oh that must be right so um, you know if you're a local resident you you may drive past those and read those things every day and you and and people very rarely think about you know the possibility that some of this um, information is totally outdated and wrong. It may suggest that you know that some of those signs really need to be revisited and replaced. Could you say a little bit more about the role that oral tradition plays in this? Sure. Um, so I think, um, especially when we're talking locally about uh, Gayakono or Cayuga Nation people, um, that this. Uh, territory, I think, was probably the least uh, described by European sort of visitors, missionaries, etc. Um, and so there's an awful lot of information that just isn't present in the documentary record that historians and scholars usually use. So there's there's all kinds of, um, uh, you know, that, that so much of it, you know, really happened outside the purview of, of Europeans altogether. So I think uh, I can give you a couple of uh, very good examples of that, which are uh, really, I, I think, very um, distressing examples, but they have to do with the Sullivan Clinton expedition. Um, the Americans uh, came through and basically came through the native people essentially headed into the woods right ahead of the uh, American forces. So there wasn't very much battlefield, um, uh, um, battlefield confrontation very few casualties on the battlefield, but native people, uh, the Cayugas ran for shelter and stayed out of the way until the Americans had burned all their villages, destroyed their crops, uh, cut down the peach and apple trees um, and, uh, and destroyed all the stored food. And then they marched on to do it to the next settlement and the native people came back. Uh, but uh, so so, but the Americans didn't see that. They weren't aware of what was going on with the native uh, with the uh, Cayuga population. And the native people um, tell the story about hiding in Great Gully and trying to keep the dogs and the babies that were with them quiet so that the Americans wouldn't figure out where they were. Um, and then, you know, I, I heard that story, and then I went back and looked in more detail about the Sullivan. Uh, expedition and there you can see where they over the Americans overnighted right there and all of a sudden it you know you can imagine what that night would have been like for the for the Gayakono people that were trapped in Great Gully and trying to keep quiet so that the Americans wouldn't come after them so I think you know that that's something where it's just it's absent completely in the uh, in the American documents but the oral tradition does talk about it, you know. So it's it's um, you know all of these things are 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 uh, are, are true, but you're just not going to see them if you use the standard historical sources. But there's still very very vivid um, descriptions of what of what these events were like that are held uh, by Gaikono people, even though they haven't been in this you know living in this region uh, in many cases for almost 200 years. Thinking especially about how. Um, the history that you've just talked about, how to, how we might connect the history that you've just talked about with thinking about the institutional presence of Cornell and um, what that means for those of us who are here today. Yeah, so, um, so certainly I think we have to um, think about the benefit that settlers in Ithaca and settler institutions like Cornell University have from being able to access and develop and use the land and resources here. Um, so clearly, 
um, you know, the city of Ithaca, Cornell University, et cetera, would not exist if we didn't have this territory. So therefore it's been very much to our advantage to have access to that land and space and resources and the natural beauty. But also I think we have to think about what native communities have lost because they've been dispossessed, right? That you can imagine what, you know, if they, if they were still here, um, you know, they, they would be in a much better place today in terms of their economies, in terms of their ability to access sacred sites, the graves of the ancestors, et cetera. Um, so this is something, although it happened, um, you know, for the most part about 200 years ago, this is something that has ongoing repercussions. And what a lot of um, scholars in indigenous studies have tried to stress is that this is something, you know, it's not something that you can just brush under the rug that it's finished and done and historical that there are continuing repercussions that really the system, the structures of inequality that we have in the United States and Canada today are predicated on this and their effects are ongoing, right? Not to mention the fact that many um, you know, native communities are still under tremendous pressure uh, from corporations and governments to get access to resources, to build pipelines, uh, um, you, you know, uh, to, to take territory. It's, it's really, uh, it's an ongoing process. So I think that this is, is something, you know, like a, 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 um, sometimes people ask me, they say, you, you know, when am I ever gonna be able to, to feel okay, right? You know, as a settler. And <laughs> I think that the answer is you're not, right? This is something that, that you have to have in the back of your mind it should be uncomfortable to be a settler, right? It's not something that, you're, that, that you should be able to wash your hands of. That there's always um, uh, elements of your wealth, your career, your institutions are built on the fact that native people were disadvantaged, um, pushed out, killed, um, marginalized uh, in the past. So we have to think about that. Um, you know, certainly President Pollock at Cornell has said that we have to think about Cornell's entanglement uh, in uh, systems of inequality and, uh, and, the and the fact of indigenous dispossession is an enormous uh, part of, the, of, of how the whole um, uh, American, North American system of inequality is, uh, is set up in the way that it is. And the project, the different pieces that I've, I've seen so far in the project also show the connections between not just this area, but how the land grant project really um, involves dispossession across North America. So Cornell's influence also in, as you said earlier in our conversation, I think across 15 different states. Yeah, in addition to New York. So, I mean, we, the most, the most tangible parts of it are locally. Um, you know, I think Cornell owns 4% of Tompkins County, for example. So it's a, it's a pretty substantial amount of Cayuga or Gayacono uh, nation territory. Uh, but because of the way that the Morrill Act was set up, um, that the federal government sort of uh, uh, allocated lands that it had recently taken um, in various forceful, nefarious, um, uh, um, you know, fraudulent ways from native people um, and gave uh, parcels of land, essentially, uh, it's a complicated process, but gave them to those universities. And uh, because uh, New York State was the, uh, had the largest population uh, in uh, the 1860s when this law was passed, Cornell received 
the most land of any land grant institution, about a million acres. And all there was no federal land in New York State because the disposition there had already taken place. It was already more or less complete. So uh, Cornell was awarded lands uh, in 15 different states. Uh, the biggest chunk uh, is, in, uh, is in Wisconsin. There was almost 500,000 acres there. Um, and uh, Ezra Cornell directly took control of those lands. Um, a lot of it was in pine lands uh, and they clear cut it and sold the timber. Eventually they sold the lands and in some cases Cornell maintains the mineral rights uh, to, some of those, to some of those parcels. Um, so you can see, I mean, that, that all of this, um, you know, it really, if, if you think about sort of uh, effects on ecosystems, that Cornell's actions really fundamentally um, changed the ecosystems uh, uh, in Wisconsin. Uh, the Pinelands have never been the same since. And of course, native, uh, native peoples based their subsistence, their cultures, their systems of spirituality on an ecosystem that, uh, that no longer exists, right? So Cornell, um, you know, uh, we can really put that right on the, uh, the university and its founder, uh, some of those ecological effects. There are, um, I think there were about 250,000 acres in California. And as uh, Governor Newsom has, uh, has um, uh, uh, publicly admitted, uh, there were overtly genocidal uh, policies adopted by the state of California, uh, where people would be awarded cash bounties for bringing in uh, body parts of native people that proved that they were dead. Um, so, you, you know, so, and that's some of the land that Cornell got so that we have that sort of, you know, it, it's the history is pretty rough, um, you know, but, but basically anytime Cornell uh, was connected to a, a piece of territory, um, uh, you know, our project has asserted that, um, uh, that, that, you know, Cornell is morally implicated uh, with, with the dispossession that happened there. Kurt Jordan is also part of an expanding group at Cornell working with the Migrations Initiative to support research, pedagogy, and community-engaged projects that respond to the intersections of migration, dispossession, and racism. This work is supported by a grant from the Mellon Foundation, and you can follow it in the coming months at our website and on Twitter at Global Cornell and with the hashtag Cornell Migrations. We now move to the U.S.-Mexico border to think about dispossession in relation to the construction of the border wall turning to my conversation with Lakin Jordahl. Lakin works with the Center for Biological Diversity, an organization that promotes the conservation of wildlife and diverse ecologies, and that approaches conservation issues through the understanding that social, economic, and environmental issues are interconnected. He's also an activist and an ally in the southern borderlands of the U.S., where he documents the devastation caused by border wall construction. It's a beautiful breezy day out on the Arizona Sonora border. And I'm sitting right at the end of the existing border wall. Uh, way back there to the west is Nogales, Arizona and Sonora. And up over my head is the Patagonia Mountains and Coronado National Memorial. The voice you're hearing is Lakin's, taken from a video on his Twitter account. In it, he sits near the edge of a border wall construction site. We've been out here all morning shooting with a film crew and we haven't seen a single border patrol agent. Now this area is the end of the existing wall. This is the first gap in the fence. I just think it's critically important to challenge this narrative that there is a crisis uh, at our border 
The only crisis is the one made by our own horrific border policies, the ones that promote death, disappearance, and environmental destruction as a false solution. In this video, like many others he circulates as part of his Borderlands campaigning, Lakin addresses the border wall as an instrument of dispossession. Despite a wealth of scholarship showing that border walls put migrants in harm, making them take riskier journeys or preventing them from reaching a safe place to claim protection, we've seen U.S. administrations insist on continuing to police and obstruct our southern border. And as Lakin's campaigns address, the wall really exemplifies how strategies for controlling or inhibiting people's movements, blocking people on the move, also destroy natural and cultural heritage and dispossess indigenous communities of their land, including, in this case, sacred desert sites. In a 2017 report called A Wall in the Wild, the Center for Biological Diversity describes how the construction of a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border will destroy wildlife habitats and inhibit the movement of many animals. But the center also recognizes that these effects are inseparable from the violence the wall represents for people on the move and for local communities. To quote from the report, the wall will no doubt deepen divisions between the two countries and, in combination with increased militarization of the border, lead to untold suffering for those seeking a better life and to harm to the many communities along the border. The wall will also have serious impacts on numerous threatened and endangered species and other wildlife. Since that 2017 report, as construction continued, we've seen these devastating effects play out. We've also seen numerous examples of resistance to the wall and the violence it inflicts on migrants and indigenous communities. As a Borderlands campaigner, Lincoln works behind the camera documenting this devastation, and he also stands with protesters as an advocate and ally. Here's our conversation. There's so many different layers of dispossession happening here. Um, historical dispossession, um, you know, uh, almost 200 years ago, uh, people came through this land and decided that this is where the border would be. And in doing that, um, they dispossessed the indigenous people, the Tahanatham and all of the other indigenous tribes native to these areas um, of their history, of their autonomy. Um, and, and starting back then, um, that, that essentially is when the violence of dispossession was uh, thrust upon this landscape. Um, and in the centuries and the decades since, um, that has manifested in more physical forms, um, such as people actually being kicked off the land, kicked out of their homesteads, um, communities being militarized, um, and then also lands that are supposed to be protected public lands, um, losing those protections as a result of the border being imposed as a result of the government um, forcing national security interests uh, onto the land. Um, and all of this, of course, with, with no uh, approval from the local communities, from native indigenous people who call these lands home. Um, so there are so many different layers of dispossession happening here um, and certainly something that needs to be central in these conversations about justice in the borderlands. And I know that your work is, is looking also at, um, at specific sites along the border. I wonder if you could um, maybe by way of example, talk about um, a particular site where we see some of these consequences really playing out. Yeah. So, you know, I think I, I tend to look at areas that I know best that are closest to my heart. Um, and Organ Pipe, Cactus National Monument, is a beautiful wilderness area on the border 
managed by the National Park Service. Um, in many ways, that's what kind of got me into this work to start with. Um, I was working with the National Park Service, looking at the biggest threats to that wilderness area, to natural and cultural resources in this national monument. Um, and it was so clear from my time there, the single biggest threat facing this beautiful landscape and all of the cultural history there was the threat of border militarization and the threat of border wall construction. Um, because uh, as soon as the federal government decides <laughs> that it wants to build a wall, um, it can just waive all of the laws that protect the landscape, that protect natural and cultural resources. Um, and in doing so, it just wipes this protection off the face of the map. Um, so specifically at Oregon Pipe, there is this beautiful freshwater spring, just a couple hundred feet north of the border, extremely rare freshwater in the desert. Um, this place is called Quito Baquito Springs. Um, biologically, it's a wonderland. There are two endangered species there that don't exist anywhere else in the country. Um, and it's also one of the longest continually inhabited places in the Sonoran Desert. There are records of human history at Quito Baquito dating back 15,000 years. Um, and in the 1950s, the National Park Service uh, <laughs> sought to push uh, an indigenous family who was living at the springs, who was tending to uh, a pasture, um, who had pomegranate trees planted out because they wanted the, the springs to fit their vision uh, of a national monument. Um, they actually constructed uh, a pond, which uh, at the time I think they thought would look something, you know, pastoral. They thought it would look like a wildlife refuge was supposed to look like. Um, and in doing so, they destroyed all of this living history, this ethnography, um, this, this, this richness um, that now we wish we could get back. Um, so Again, there have been so many different layers of, of erasure and dispossession on this landscape. Um, and just this year, uh, the border wall has been built through the springs, uh, across uh, the area just south of the springs, destroying cultural sites, stopping wildlife migration, um, and again, erasing history and dispossessing all of us uh, of the connection to this land. And I've followed a lot of this thanks to your um, efforts also on sh and sharing this information on social media. And I, I know that a lot of, um, through a lot of news coverage too, maybe not enough news coverage, but as you've been able to represent what's going on there to different outlets. Um, and it's, I mean, you used the word violence before and um, you really see that in some of these photos. I'm um, remembering a couple of images of um, the sort of chopping down of these cactuses, I think that, um, I assume are also unique to that area that are part of the, the national monument, like its namesake, um, that you see just sort of laying there in the wake of this um, construction. This is really, um, to see border wall construction as actually an act of destruction is pretty um, astounding. Yeah, astounding is a good way to put it. Um, I mean, it was so deeply enraging to return to this place where I used to work, where my job there was to try and protect the wilderness. And to see the namesake species, <laughs> the Oregon pipe cactus, uh, chopped up and discarded in trash heaps uh, along the site of border wall construction. Um, I mean, this entire monument was designated to protect the Oregon pipe cactus, the swaro cactus. Um, and these are the species that we're seeing um, just obliterated to make way for the border wall. 
hundreds, if not thousands of them, um, have been completely destroyed to make way for this wall through a wilderness area, through a UNESCO biosphere reserve, through uh, areas that are sacred to the Tahanatham and other indigenous nations. Um, it is astounding and enraging. Um, and it's hard to comprehend just how much history is being destroyed when each one of these beautiful cactus specimens is destroyed. Um, one Swaro cactus can live over 200 years. It takes uh, a cactus 10 years to reach the size of, of my fist. I mean, these cactuses grow so incredibly slowly. Um, some of the ones that we've seen bulldozed, just, just chopped up in pieces, um, were much likely older than the border itself. Um, so it's hard to comprehend the, the amount of destruction and erasure happening here. That's a really remarkable way to, to well, to place a reminder also that the of the border as as itself a construction. Um, and I, I think of especially about Quito Springs as a place where we could, you know, go or a, an area that we could study as a place where well, I'm thinking about how in this podcast and the initiative, we're really interested in the intersections of all these different kinds of movements and really understanding how human movement and human well-being is tied to um, local ecologies and to the, the movement of plants and animals to changes, um, you know, sensitive to changes in weather and climate. And so what a what a rich environment for studying that. And then given what's happening, what a what an example of the multiple kinds of consequences that this kind of construction can have, how it affects all kinds of different living living beings and their entanglement with each other. But you're also talking about it as something that's not unique to now, that there's um, also a much longer history of dispossession along the border. And even at this site, that even in the 50s, they were already displacing people to, you said, create the site in the image that they had in mind of what it should be. Um, and so thinking to the future also, I wonder if there's some talk that if the border wall doesn't remain as a physical construct, um, in any case, it will become a kind of high-tech wall. So with surveillance drones and towers and maybe um, strategically placed lighting and that kind of thing. Um, do you have thoughts about that kind of wall or border structure as opposed to the physical um, wall that we see being put in place now? Yeah, certainly. So, I mean, before this current wall, this current iteration of the border that they're called Trump wall, ripped through organ pipe, there were already dozens of high-tech surveillance towers, infrared camera technology, uh, all sorts of cameras and sensors deployed throughout the wilderness. Um, I think people don't understand that we already have what, what folks often describe as a virtual wall placed all along the border. Uh, we already have the largest law enforcement agency in the country with 20,000 agents deployed throughout our communities, throughout national monuments and wilderness areas. Um, there is already an army of border patrol agents uh, scattered uh, across the border um, with technologies that you wouldn't even believe. Um, so I think in so many ways, we already have that virtual wall. And to be honest, that in itself, that technology, that surveillance is extremely damaging to civil rights, to communities, and also to the environment, because we have to install these structures deep into wilderness areas. We have to drive out and maintain them. Um, and with or without a wall, 
the operations of Border Patrol and the Department of Homeland Security run roughshod over areas protected uh, by laws like the Wilderness Act. Um, when I worked at Oregon Pipe, uh, one of the pieces of information that we were able to uncover is that Border Patrol vehicles drove 17,000 miles off-road in designated wilderness areas in just one year. Um, so that means they're ripping through these areas, destroying archaeological sites, interfering with uh, endangered species like the Sonoran pronghorn. Um, so there's so much environmental degradation happening beyond just border wall construction. And all of that is a threat to the records of cultural history. Um, all of that is destroying uh, the borderlands as we know them. What examples of um, resistance or solidarity practices have, have you participated in or have maybe been a model for you in working to combat this violence? Yeah, so there's been all sorts um, of, of, of protests, of direct actions, of efforts to uh, meet with congressional representatives. Um, you know, our campaign against the wall has employed all of those tactics. We've we've lobbied Congress. We've uh, worked with border communities uh, to mount massive protest demonstrations. Um, we've filed more than half a dozen lawsuits uh, against this project. Um, so we've used every tool available to us, at least in terms of traditional organizing. Um, but I have been so inspired um, by a concerted movement of indigenous activists, uh, mostly led by Atham women um, who have led the direct actions at the border. Um, they've shut down uh, the distribution uh, of materials to get to border wall sites. They've mounted actions up in Phoenix to stop the production of steel. Um, and again, down at Oregon Pipe, uh, where they were actually building the wall across Quito Boquito, the sacred spring. Um, it's, it's so enraging to watch the National Park Service, uh, who I used to work for, be the agency that is actually arresting and incarcerating uh, these indigenous activists. Um, some of my friends have been thrown in jail uh, by National Park Service police who took an oath to protect the natural and cultural history uh, of places like Oregon Pipe. Um, so to me, um, I think a lot has to be done. Uh, the charges against Nellie and Amber, who were the land defenders arrested at Oregon Pipe, must be dropped. Um, and, and I do think that those kinds of direct actions, especially when led by people indigenous to that land, um, must be listened to. What would you say to people who are really physically removed from that part of the country about, um, I guess, how to, how to get involved or what can be done or um, even how we might understand how these acts of dispossession affect people and communities who are living far from the border itself? I think for starters, people have to understand that the borderlands is not a place that you hear about on the news. So many people I talk to think about the U.S.-Mexico border, and they describe it back to me as, as a desolate place with sand dunes and rocks and not a lot of communities, not a lot of history, um, certainly not a lot of biological diversity. Um, but the reality of the U.S.-Mexico borderlands is that it is one of the most breathtaking, uh, culturally diverse, um, 
exciting places that I've ever lived. That's why I've fallen so deeply in love with it. Um, and I think we have to reframe how we talk about the border, how we think about the border and see it as a place worthy of protection, uh, see it as a place uh, of, of hope and encounter and interchange. Um, and I think that in a way, uh, just the border existing has erased all of that from people's consciousness. Um, and I think it's so important that folks are, are able to, to come down to the borderlands, see these beautiful landscapes, um, take a step into these incredible border communities that are so often miscast as dangerous places when nothing could be further from the truth when you actually look at the crime statistics. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, there has to be an overall cultural shift uh, about how we see the border um, and not see this as, as, as a problem or a crisis or an issue that must be fixed, um, but a place that needs to be protected, um, as a place that needs to be celebrated, as a place that actually provides a framework for all of us as, as we look forward uh, to, to how, how to heal and how to live together, how to celebrate cultural diversity and history. Um, and I think that the borderlands as a region has been so marginalized, so erased, so dispossessed um, that we have to do a lot of justice work and healing. Um, and, and I'm hopeful uh, for the future because I think um, more and more people are aware now of all of the injustices that have been inflicted on this region. Uh, if there's anything that Trump did effectively, <laughs> um, I think it was make the world aware uh, of just how heartless his border policies were, just how destructive his policies were. Um, and I'm, I'm hopeful that now we'll have the political will uh, to really make meaningful and lasting change. It's really, thank you for that answer. It's a really beautiful answer. And also um, I, I'm happy to hear from you that you have hope and also, um, I don't know, this vision of the idea of reframing the narrative um, really by centering the borderlands as, I mean, I think we also often think about them as um, only a space of transit or an edge space instead of a space that is its own rich um, environment full of life, as you said. Um, so I, I'm wondering how, um, how the pandemic has affected your work or how it's affected um, dynamics in the borderlands. Um, and I guess I'd, be, I'd also be curious to hear you think um, into the future a little bit about things that you see on the horizon, possible changes or kinds of work that you're, that you're doing now. Yeah, I mean, I think the movement for justice in the borderlands and so many other movements were, were deeply stymied by uh, the pandemic. Um, we were building momentum. We were starting to mount uh, more and more large-scale protest actions uh, in the fall and going into the spring of 2020. Uh, and then the pandemic happened. Um, and one of the most frustrating things about it uh, was that wall construction didn't stop. Um, people from across the country continued to pour into border communities to build the wall, uh, living in encampments that were documented to actually spread coronavirus into border communities uh, near tribal nations. Um, so we were all under a stay-at-home order, but the government wouldn't stop wall construction. Um, and I think that recklessness uh, really showed you what, what their priorities were. Um, 
of course, we also saw the movement for Black Lives just completely blossom, and so much of our energy went into that. Um, and I think the intersectionality of of that movement um, and Indigenous solidarity movements against the wall actually helped support uh, our overall cause. Um, and I think you know there was so much achieved last summer and fall uh, in that sense. Um, and there's so many clear connections between all of our work here, and we've known that for a long time. Um, but I think now, as we're moving forward, um, you know, we are working on uh, building this coalition. Uh, we are working on unifying our asks and our demands. Um, a group of about, I think, like four or five dozen organizations recently submitted a document to the Biden administration outlining specific areas where we are demanding that the wall come down, areas where the wall is causing imminent harm to the environment, uh, natural and cultural resources, places like Quito Springs, where every day, if the wall stays up, more and more species will be pushed to extinction. Um, so we're working on that. And then, you know, my longer term uh, hopes and dreams uh, for the borderlands uh, are that the Biden administration uh, set aside a significant amount of, of federal funding to actually restore and repair all of the damages. Um, and that something akin to the, the, the Civilian Conservation Corps um, is enacted uh, that employs youth from border communities, from indigenous tribes, from areas that have been so marginalized uh, and suffered from uh, a lot of underemployment. Um, and that we're actually the ones who get to work restoring these lands um, and obviously have a key seat at the decision-making table in terms of which areas to take the wall down, what areas to focus on uh, repairing the damages. Um, and I think, you know, reparations for tribal communities who have had to watch their sacred sites be destroyed for the wall are absolutely in order. You, I'm glad you brought up the connection with the Movement for Black Lives. And I, oh, I wonder if um, also, um, Sensing a connection to movements happening in other parts of the world in border spaces, um, and if there's any kind of network of activists that are thinking across regions, um, or is that something that is is not really happening directly um, from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, a lot of our networks are are very much connected to movements uh, in southern Mexico. Um, you know, the Mexican border itself has also become a militarized, almost secondary layer to our border here in the US. Um, DHS has dumped millions of dollars into militarizing Mexico's border with Guatemala. Um, so there's a lot of intersectional work going on between uh, our border here and the border to our south. Um, and I think you know one of the most encouraging things to me that I've watched blossom in the last few years um, is solidarity among indigenous activists and indigenous led movements um, all across the globe. Um, and I think it's become very clear <laughs> that um, if we're going to be successful uh, in, in stopping border militarization and restoring uh, sovereignty to indigenous nations, um, we have to tap into that international movement and uplift all of these struggles happening all across the world. Um, because essentially it is, it's all the same struggle the struggle against erasure, against dispossession, the struggle for autonomy um, and self-governance, um, which, yeah, we, we, we all can get behind, I think, on so many different levels. Thanks, that's really, that's really powerful. And 
Well, I'm, I'm interested in the relationship between what happens on the academic side and what happens um, on the ground and in activist spaces. And of course, there are a lot of people who are moving between these spaces, so it's not necessarily a clear divide. Um, but I wondered um, if you had thoughts about what could or should be happening in classrooms, for example, um, or what, um, what power universities might have to respond to some of what's happening in the borderlands? It's a good question. I, and I honestly haven't thought <laughs> much about it, um, but right off the bat, um, I think some of the most important questions that we'll all be wrestling with in the coming years is what does justice look like? Um, what do reparations look like? How could you possibly begin to compensate uh, individuals or a community for these unspeakable harms that have been inflicted on them? Um, and I certainly think the world of academia um, should delve into those really complex questions. Um, I know that there have been, uh, you know, a lot of different research uh, projects done on all of that, looking at, you know, justice for genocide in Guatemala and, and so many other places um, for the destruction of cultural sites and sacred sites. Um, while we can't place any sort of monetary value um, on what has been destroyed by the Trump administration, um, I think we need we need to lean towards uh, well look look towards academia in terms of 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 looking at how could you possibly start to repair these damages. Um, and I'd be really curious to hear some answers from academics who have spent a lot more time thinking on on those questions than we have here. Um, so I think you know just in every way, uh, the imposition of a border um, and then our attempts to secure it and militarize it and enforce it um, is just a cycle, uh, a never ending cycle of dispossession because none of the wall construction, none of the militarization uh, is actually trying to fix a problem. It's, it's all about politics. It's all about tough talk. It's all about winning elections. Um, and as long as, as, as the borderlands are continued, well, as long as they're still used as, as a political football, as long as politicians continue to come down here for photo ops and, and talk tough on the border, I think the cycle is going to continue. To learn more about the issues and movements we mentioned in this episode, check out our episode page where we link to information about, for example, Quito Paquito Springs, and the blog post where Kurt Jordan introduces the Cornell Indigenous Dispossession Project. We also recommend episodes from the Red Nation podcast for more on issues of dispossession and decolonization. And we'll return to these issues as part of our second season. And with that, thanks again so much for being with us for season one of the podcast. We'd love to hear from you about what this first season has meant to you. And we're always curious to hear where you're listening from and when you've shared some of our content with colleagues, students, or friends. We'll be back with our second season later this year. In the meantime, stay tuned for bonus episodes. We'd also like to thank everyone who's made this first season possible, including the Cornell Migrations Initiative and Anaudi Center teams, Cornell faculty and staff who have worked behind the scenes, and our guests this season, who include Tassian Shams, Kitty Fiorella, Felice Garib, Ingrid Boaz, Camila Hawthorne, Shilja Patel, Monami Badra Haynes, Lorenzo Pizzani, Kurt Jordan, and Lincoln Jordal. If you missed hearing our conversations with any of these scholars and activists, we hope you'll give them a listen. Thanks for listening to Migrations, A World on the Move, 
a podcast by Global Cornell's Migrations Global Grand Challenge, a cross-disciplinary multi-species initiative that studies how the movements of people, animals, microbes, resources, ideas, and more shape our world. You can learn more about the initiative at migrations.cornell.edu, where you can also find relevant links from this episode. Follow us at Global Cornell and with the hashtag Cornell Migrations. This podcast is hosted by Eleanor Painter, Migrations Postdoc at the Mario Inaudi Center for International Studies and produced by Megan DeMint. Much of the podcast was produced at Cornell University on the traditional homelands of the Cayuga Nation, and we recognize Cayuga Nation sovereignty and the indigenous peoples who have lived and continue to live on this land. Our music is basically really by Steve Fawcett. Migrations, A World on the Move is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.